Hey everyone, it's Alec. Um, this is not another ad, actually. This is just a little intro that I recorded to the podcast because straightforward, uh, there's an F word somewhere in this podcast and I don't know where it is because I edited the hour and a half thing and I somehow missed it. I know that Lucas said it at some point. Maybe it got edited out somewhere. Maybe it didn't. Um, but look, at this point, I don't think that very many of you care, but just in case there's somebody who, you know, is listening with a little one and doesn't want to hear it, I wanted to make sure to give you a proper heads up. There's plenty of other beeps. Thank you, Lucas. Uh, but uh, that the one of the F word is missing somewhere. So look, if you hear it, congratulations. It's a little Easter egg of a thing. Um, thanks for listening. Y'all are great. And I hope you enjoy this super long, but super fun episode of the Gravity Falls finale. Thanks. Where the mysteries of Gravity Falls creep into the non-animated world. This is the Gravity Bros Podcast. I am Alec. And this is, of course, my brother Lucas, here for the season one finale of our Gravity Falls rewatch. What's up, bro? How's it going, man? This was a phenomenal episode. I'm quite excited to talk about it. I really am, too. Before we get into it, there are a couple of things that I want to announce about the show. Uh... This is, of course, the last episode of season one. That means that Lucas and I have been doing this for a little while. And with it being the season one finale, I don't want to disappoint people, but I do want to let you know that Gravity Bros is going to take a small hiatus. We are absolutely going to be finishing the rewatch, no doubt about it. But there's a couple reasons why this hiatus is taking place. Uh, I would say above all, I'm getting married and there is a lot that's about to pick up. Woo! Everyone... Oh, wait, we're not on YouTube. Uh, go to YouTube and give Alec a compliment about that or something. <laughs> sure, or the Discord or whatever. Whatever you want yeah. to do. You don't, you don't even have to. It's okay. Just think um, Think congratulations. We'll telepathetically... It's it's not telep telepathically. It's telepathetically. Just making sure everyone knows that. Uh, we will receive the message telepathetically. Very good. Um, In the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Lore attraction at Disney World, there is a character that uses that exact phrase quite frequently. His name is Buddy Boyle. Uh, wow. Fun fact. That's cool. That is a fun fact. Uh, anyway. There's some there's um, some Disneyland stuff that I'm alluding to that we'll talk about in this episode that I'll ask about. Oh, I have some stuff to talk about with that, too. Ooh. Um, <laughs> in addition to getting married, I'm going to have the honeymoon the month after that. And then one more month in November... I am actually moving to Oregon to live right near Lucas so that we can start doing this show and Hester Brothers Cartoon Theater, the YouTube channel, together. We announced that on our live stream, but if you didn't watch that, then this might be news. And yes, it's happening. Yay. And also, um, less lag in our communications. There's honestly, our communication is pretty good. But still, it'll be in person, and that'll be better for many reasons. Yeah, it's going to be very, very fun. And I think that most of all, we're just excited to be able to be in the same place and get energy off the stuff together. But also, yeah. the show that takes place in Oregon, we get to do from Oregon together. And that's a fun little tidbit on top of it all. You know, actually, I recently found that there is a place in Oregon with like that bottomless hole. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah I actually drove past it on my road trip recently, so uh, I can take you there. Uh, and I've been finding like there's a couple places that were in that are in the episode or showcase admin at the Mystery Shack that do exist for real in Oregon. Not just that one. There are others too. So we should explore. Okay. <laughs> See, I felt like the bottom. Thing. No, you're good. I felt like the bottom was whole from that Journal Four entry was maybe in a different place, but there could be more uh, similar yeah. things. Well, I'm sure it's not actually like a bottomless pit, but sure, <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a big hole. But you know, it's cool. Right. I like right. big that holes. 
that one pro- mm, that one mm. probably exists more likely than the one that we talked about because they haven't even been able to find that one. Um, yes. yes. So anyway, needless to say, there's a lot going on in my life. So the podcast, we love it. Um, it takes a decent amount of work to put all the moving pieces together from uh, watching the episode, then getting to the recording and then editing it. So uh, it's going to be easier to pause it. But I do think it's safe to say that it will be back by the end of the year. And we're probably going to try to do bonus episodes to keep the feed fresh every now and then. We've got some ideas for that. We do. Yeah. And also shout out to people in the Discord for giving us better ideas than we had. Yes. Uh, <laughs> indeed. Um, so sweet. Uh, with that said, oh, oh, and the one really important thing. Uh, yeah. It's time to shatter the illusion. It's time to admit to the audience that we actually did know that the mysterious woman has been leaving messages in this podcast for the last several months. It is a fact. Uh, Alec knew a little more than I did. That's accurate. Probably everything (laughs) compared to Lucas. So for those of you that have been playing along and have been trying to solve the puzzle that the mysterious woman is trying to deliver you, it is now my responsibility to let you know that as of this episode airing, you will be able to solve the puzzle. Technically, the last clue was in the last one. But now, as of right now, you are able to solve it. You would not have been in episode 19. So let that serve as your final clue as you try to navigate to where you have to go for some bonus content from Lucas and I. That The only way to find this bonus content is by solving the puzzle. So uh, for those of you who have put the work in, I think that'll be a very fun little thing for you to find. That's so cool. That's that's awesome. Thank you for designing that and everyone who helped design that. Yeah, the real credit goes to the puzzle master who doesn't like to be named in these things because they keep yeah. a lot of an, uh, anonymity. Um, but I love they that. did a terrific job. Uh, yeah. And also, Anna, Anna, as the mysterious woman, has just done an amazing job too. I would love to get her on the podcast to talk at some point, maybe. Uh, That'd be cool. We should do can... something like that. Yeah. Um, so... Anyway, dude, I guess it's time to unpack this finale episode. Are you ready? Yeah, I want to have the puzzle master on here too, to be honest. But <laughs> I, I might be able to get them. I think with enough we'll time. We'll yeah, I, I think so. Uh, all right. All right, let's do it. Cold open. A shadow casts over Gravity Falls. The shack has been hit by a wrecking ball, as we see what happened at the end of our last episode. But it's a dream, and Dipper wakes up and realizes... That in fact, yes, everything in the last episode really did happen. It was not just a dream. And as Journal 3 taught us at the end of the last episode, we do see the group of uh, Mabel, Dipper, Grunkle Stan, and Seuss in Seuss's Abuelita's house. And And that's where we start. I, for one, love seeing Abuelita's house and seeing Seuss there. It's kind of an interesting insight to, you know, the culture of Seuss, honestly. Seuss gets yeah. a shocking amount of character development in this episode. For all the yeah. else that's going on, like, he actually gets a ton of screen time and, and, you know, exposition. Yeah, starting last episode, it became amazing to me how much the Gravity Falls creators have been able to fit in a 22-minute episode. Um, you know, these last two might have even been a little bit longer than standard based on the runtime, but that may or may not be true. Either way, um, the original episodes, they're super fun, super high energy, but uh, I find myself taking more notes as the plot gets heavier because there's nothing you want to miss. 
Yeah, I, I definitely was, there There were some things that I just like hoped that you would have written down because I really try not to pause all that often so that I can let the flow of the show play out. But there's so many details. It's, it's really immaculate, especially in, you know, when you start getting to like season finales and stuff. So again, if there's background stuff that we've missed and didn't talk about, always let us know. Yeah. All right. So in the house of Abuelita, they are watching a TV news report and it is showing Gideon having taken over the mystery shack. Uh, and it's a really good montage. Like the, I think the reporter flashes to a picture of Stan in a devil costume. And yeah. Devil's just like that picture was taken out of context. Yeah. He, you said devil says it like, as opposed to Grunkle Stan, like you called him the devil as if it was his name. Was that intentional? <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, sure. Exactly. <laughs> uh, good. Um, yeah, so anyway, Gideon's getting interviewed, and he's inviting all the people of Gravity Falls to go to the mystery shack that now belongs to him for a big announcement. Um, and they get in for free if they wear his pin. That's a pretty good deal, I'm not gonna lie. It is, and an important detail. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Dipper can't believe that Gideon has beat them. Shock. And to be honest, I can't really believe it either. This kid just seemed like a nuisance, and here he is. Uh, and I did feel like this finale was the culmination of the Gideon villain arc of season one. Yeah. And, and for what it's worth, I have a lot of notes about how Gideon actually is played extremely well throughout this whole episode. You know, like, I, again, a good character you love to hate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, like, his intro with the commercial and the way that he does all of his deliveries is, like, this is a very unique character. You know what I mean? Like, Gideon is not a bland villain by any stretch of the imagination, and I love that. You know what I mean? You're right. There is not another Lil Gideon that I can picture in fiction. You know, he no. is a very unique character in the way that he he is motivated, uh, in the way that he delivers himself. Like, yeah. he's like a 10-year-old con man. Um, well, or a prepubescent politician was more what i was thinking but yeah same thing sure i mean honestly a mixture of the both of those uh and I mean, those are practically the same words as far as i'm concerned <laughs> sure but part of his uh his his uh, nature of being this con man is a little bit real because he does have his hands on some very real magic and he is motivated by trying to get his hands on more of it to be in a way more authentic yeah and and he like he, I, I, I guess I can't like, I don't want to skip quite to this scene yet, but there are some scenes in this where he is like genuinely an ominous villain. And that's a real testament to the animators and writers of the show, because you're trying to make a 10 year old boy with that voice seem intimidating. Like that's probably not a very easy task, to be honest. You're right. And they do it well. And they um, do it great. Like I'm, I like, We'll get to the end scene, but, like, this climax of this episode is, like, the best of any episode that we've seen. Ooh, okay, yes, we will. So, Mabel is ready to be the hero of the family, and she says she's just going to beat Gideon with her grappling, grappling hook. hook. Yeah, come on. Everyone who's seen the show knows what the grappling hook is. I, you know, I literally even wrote down, can I give the grappling hook my character points for this episode? You know what's fun is that this is a very good wrap-up in a way because we got the grappling hook as a tiny plot device at the end of episode one of the series, like the actual mm -hmm. premiere episode, where yeah. Mabel is gifted to it uh, by Grunkle Stan, who's giving them each a gift. And, you know, we barely even talked about it on that original episode, even though we knew it would kind of be important, because it is so quick. 
Um, yeah. But then here we are in the finale. We go from episode one to 20 and the grappling hook is back with some kind of relevance. Uh, you know, Dipper has said, this has never helped us once in the entire 20 episode season of this show. He doesn't say literally, but <laughs> that's kind of what, what the writers are trying to tell us. Yeah. Yeah, and and so can we get to Gideon Land? I really want to talk about Gideon Land. Sure. Yeah, we can do that. So yeah, basically, Stan just realizes being in this place with Seuss and Abuelita that he just misses his home. He's like, we gotta get this shack back, and we get to the episode. So does is that the scene? Is that the scene that he has a conversation with Dipper's parents, or is that or Dipper Dipper and Mabel's parents, or is that later? That's a little bit later. This is okay. right after uh, Mabel just smashes this random jar of jelly with her grappling hook. And oh, yeah, that's right. To care. Um, yeah. But yeah. because so Abuelita's so... a good grandma. She's a sweet, sweet lady. That's why. Yeah, she is. She we is. don't get that much from her, but she's fun in this episode. Yeah. Um, so it's announcement day. The town of Gravity Falls has shown up in spades, just like Gideon knew they would. Uh and he busts through a picture of himself, really just, I guess, literally doubling down on uh, who he is and his pull over this community and how great they think he is. Yeah, and his intro, again, is just very, very, very funny. You know what I mean? It's just so, his voice is just delivering every line really, like, again, you got, you love to hate him, but I can't help but feel like this is one of the most unique villains I've ever seen in a show. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, you know, because the way that he's doing the whole, like, I don't know how to describe it except that, like, 50s theme park introduction style. You know what I mean? Like, the music and the, like, kind of almost like it's like a po- like uh, propaganda, you know, from that time, too with the little American flag pin and stuff. Sure. Well, I mean, we can get into this a little bit because it is at this moment that he announces Gideon land, yes. which is meant to be a Gideon themed theme park, which essentially, you know, a theme park designed around one person who is seen as an icon by a lot of people. And, and when we I look don't know at the, the, no, no, we do. We know who, when we look at the sign, <laughs> Like, the sign that Gideon... It literally looks identical to the classic Disneyland sign. Not, not like, a newer one. You recognize that, right? Oh, yeah. I wrote down, Gideon Land has a very similar logo to the original Disneyland. And it's and true. I forgot that this was a Disney show until, like, almost the end. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. They're doing a satire of their own company. That must have been a little, a little ballsy to throw in there, to be honest. It is, and I gotta say, I don't know how high on the level of satire I think it is, and how much it's, or I guess not making fun of Walt Disney specifically, but more the general premise that people could have somebody be so iconicized where they would be able to make an entire theme park with their name in it. Um, You know, whether it's Walt Disney or anybody else. That is Uh, funny. And it, it is interesting that you know, Disney was perfectly fine with this being out there. And I think it's because it does not feel like no. it's a shot at Disney or like considering no, him any kind of a cult-like figure. More no. so, it's just a very funny oh. idea in general. I don't know. I, maybe you could make an argument for that case, but it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, I agree with you. It, there's nothing right. like, it doesn't feel like commentary on society or anything like that to me, really. I could, I could make it sound like that if I think hard enough about it, and I definitely would. But I don't think that it has to be like that for, for the general audience. 
For what it's worth, you know that I have a very fond memory and experience of my time working for the Walt Disney Company. Oh, but yeah. there are definitely pieces of it right now that are definitely cult-like oh. <laughs> in some ways. Like, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that because my friends will say it too. Uh, and, and that's more in the way that there's a lot of Disney cast members who will work their jobs and a lot of them claim to not like it, but they continue to stay there and try to get promoted within the company yeah. and continue to buy the products. And, you know, they make this money and then they spend it on discounts right back into the park. <laughs> um, that sounds like and, Scientology. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, there, there's some interesting elements of it. I still think that, you know, there's so many amazing products that Disney has made over the course of time from the moment that Walt Disney started the whole thing until now, which are worth being fans over and worth having a fandom within. Um, but I think that this idea of, you know, this eccentric character having built a, a anything around just their name, you can't help but think, wow, that is kind of wild that that happened and was never questioned whatsoever. Yeah, it made me think about, honestly, I didn't even think about it until you started saying it. I'm like, yeah, I guess this guy literally is like, this is my theme park. My name's Disney. Everybody come to my place. You know what I mean? And everyone's like, yeah, let's go. I mean, all it has to be is cool for it to work, right? Yeah, I guess. But the, where they stop short with it is that this thing never really becomes a theme park at all. Whether that's the no, intention. Yeah. Like, we don't we don't get any rides. We don't get anything. No, it's just a small. Likely. It's a small gag. I, the thing that's funny about it to me is that, like, like I watched an, uh, I think I watched a defunct land episode. So everybody know I'm not a historian. I'm just talking out of my ass. But um, I saw that like Walt Disney kind of tried to originally set up Disney World as if it was kind of going to like be its own country and everything was going to be self-sustainable and like the workers would live there and there'd be like their own economy and even like Disney dollars and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's hilarious because he didn't like communism and he like literally tried to set up his own communist society within America. Well, yeah, there's a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff that goes into that, actually. Um, and we could talk about Disney history all day. You're referring mostly to Epcot. So the Magic Kingdom yeah. was not intended to be that way. But Epcot, the second park within Walt Disney World, was originally thought to be a city, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Uh, yeah. And it's still called that. Um but and it wasn't going to play by U.S. rules entirely. It didn't need to. It still kind of doesn't, honestly. <laughs> no, people think that if Walt Disney had not passed before it was created, that maybe he would have actually made it happen. And I think it would have posed a lot of problems for him and the future of the company. Because the moment that Disney wow. steps into the geopolitical realm, I actually think that becomes a problem. The fact that his brother Roy Disney was able to make Epcot happen as more of a theme park, I think ultimately might have actually saved the company. People don't realize how many bad ideas that Walt Disney had. Um, oh, my, can I say my favorite one that you told me? Yeah. He, he, so Tom Sawyer's Island was originally supposed to be a place that was stocked with fish and you could go fishing. And it, it happened. Like people could bring their fishing poles and actually go fishing at Tom Sawyer's Island. But people decided naturally that they weren't about to carry their fish across the park. So people just started leaving dead fish all over the park. And there were just rotting fish corpses. So they stopped doing it. Yeah, it's such a good fun fact. And it's one of those things that you don't hear a lot in the history books. You do hear that the first day of Disneyland was a big failure where they oh, really? bit off more than they can chew. Yeah, there were lots of um, rides breaking down. Um I think there was a thing where they didn't have enough water fountains or park benches or something like that. It was too hot. All kinds of different problems that just 
really made it a rough opening day, but it was there for promotion. And Walt Disney was like, they're the face of it, trying to just make everybody believe that it was going really well. Um, nice. And, Propaganda is how you got to do it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, even the greatest creators ever make a lot of mistakes, I think Absolutely. is a good lesson to take away from Walt Disney's time. And it took oh, a lot of people helping him to make Disney become what it is. It was not like a sole effort. The thing is, he was the one who was willing to try it and have the wild ideas, you know, take the shot. How many people have had wild ideas that haven't even gotten off the ground? Um, yeah, it's just like, I guess I'm not equating to getting into Walt Disney whatsoever, because I think that <laughs> Walt Disney's heart genuinely has always been in the right place from everything I know about him and all the history that I've read. Um, um, I would say that it's more of a satire of how what Disney's become versus how he created yes. it. You know what and I mean? Like That is the point that I was making. When I say that it's cult-like now, I honestly think there's a way that it's more cult-like at the current, present, modern day than it was in the very beginning when I, I guess people were already a fan of Disney fiction, but mm -hmm. the idea of being a Disney adult, as a lot of people say, um, is centered around the current mentality. Um, mm -hmm. but again, it's hard for me to really come down too hard on that because I myself am such a big fan of a lot of this stuff. And as long as you're pretty aware of the culture that you're a part of, I don't think that there's anything wrong with really enjoying that. Well, I think that's the problem is the many people that aren't aware. Maybe. I think that might be uh, the nail on the head. You know, cause you like to, when you get that in, I think it's bad to worship anything that hard. You know what I mean? Sure. Because sure, it, yeah. it, it makes you not actually be mindful about the flaws. You know, it doesn't matter who, if it's a celebrity, if it's a couple YouTubers, if it's, you know, Walt Disney, you know, even something as big as Disney. I mean, religions, whatever it is, if you worship like too hard, you're going to get lost in the sauce and not be able to see because everything has problems. There's nothing that's perfect out there. And don't look for the perfect thing because it's you. You're the perfect thing, everybody. Sure. And let me tell you, the town of Gravity Falls is lost in the sauce with Gideon in this theme park announcement. Exactly. Oh, oh, you guys hear that transition back into the plot? Jeez, that was good. All right, please continue. <laughs> uh, they still very much believe Gideon is a psychic. And, you know, that's a reminder from back in episode two or three, however early it was, that the town has never stopped buying into this lie. Uh, Gideon is still very much an icon within this town. And as he makes this announcement, he's even got like his mascot, Lil Gideon Jr., which is Waddles dressed up as him. Dude, also, when I saw him pull Waddles out, like when, when this started, I was like, wow, this is a great villain introduction. I was like, maybe I might give him a point in this episode. And then I saw him hold up Waddles and I literally, I can't believe I was about to give this piece of crap a point. I hate this guy. <laughs> Can you believe that he somehow inherited Waddles with the deed? Like, how did that work? Mabel won this pig at a fair. Like, well, how does, is this a I package mean, deal? I, I think that, that the, the one scene kind of explains how we're kind of clued in to suspend our disbelief for this plot line, which is Gideon holding up the deed and just being like, I don't know what you mean, Stan. You just gave me the deed. And the cops being like, well, that's all I need to hear. Yeah, well, because now Stan has stormed the stage to try telling everybody that Gideon's a fraud. And of course, there's no way to make anybody in the town believe him because they are already part of this huge group mentality. They're not just going to yeah. turn around because Stan says something. Yeah, so um, Gideon has these big, freaking, like, huge bodyguards, which are designed very, in a funny way, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, he pretty much kicks them out of the park. 
And Gideon has one of my favorite lines of the episode, actually, just purely because of his delivery. Don't come back. I don't care for y'all. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just liked that. It was such a little detail. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk actually a lot about this episode. Despite how heavy in plot and story and all these other things there are, there's still the little soft touches of like good, like well-read lines, small funny moments and small adorable moments with Dipper and Mabel that like give the show so much flavor and they still work it in with everything else going on in this episode. It's amazing. That's terrific. Well, and I'll tell you what, I feel like I took such detailed notes about the plot that you can help fill in these gaps with some of these cute moments. So uh, yeah. say, say things as they come up. But uh, as they get kicked out here, Dipper at this point is still trying to be optimistic that they can get the shack back. So Wendy just pops up out of nowhere and is like, yeah, we better. If I can't work at the shack, my dad's going to make me move and work upstate. Yeah. And just to go to Washington to do logging. Oh, that's rough, dude. Honestly, just being in the Pacific Northwest isn't that rough regardless. Well, yeah, but lo logging is probably very hard. I feel like that's one yeah. of those, like, like, that's hard labor. You know what I mean? You're tired at the end of your day. It'd be kind of rewarding a little bit, I bet. But still, it's hot. It gets hot out here. My state's on fire. True? Yes. I don't actually mind hard labor as a job. I, oh, I might yeah. be... What's the hardest labor you've ever done as a job, sir? Working at the Tomorrowland Speedway. And before you dismiss that, dude... You are I in, that was hard. Uh, Don't get no, me wrong. We're in a hundred degree heat like all day and the entire job is outside. We physically move the cars when they break with a quick jack. We pull them off the track. And They're on wheels though. Our... Okay, sure. But these things are heavy. These are legitimate cars. Um, I'm just saying, I imagine, imagine having this conversation with a logger right now. Okay, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> the point that I'm making I'm not though, saying it's not hard. I'm just saying like, there's, there's, there's scales, power scaling. Sure. I, I recognize that it's not as hard as construction or many of these bigger jobs. I'm not trying to say that. It's more yeah. so the feeling of leaving at the end of the day, being super exhausted, smelling yeah. like gasoline, feeling like you worked extremely hard at the end of the day yeah. would, you'd think would sound bad, but there's something yeah. about it that feels kind of good. Um, and I sometimes wonder like, would I enjoy a job like construction? Because it's not a thinky job. You just go, you no. do it. And then you're able to go home at the end of the day and leave it behind. There's something I mean, kind of appealing about that. I loved work. I worked grounds for a while in college and I loved it. Mostly because I was hanging out with my friends and kind of being a hooligan. But like, it was fun. I liked it. I didn't have to think. That was a good thing. I didn't like sure. my boss all that much. though. So that made a difference. Honestly, most jobs kind of depend on just who you work with at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. The problem that I had with it is because it would leave me without energy for other things. And I think yeah. that's why I prefer a job that is, um, you know, inside. And in this case, I'm lucky enough to work from home to do social research. So even for though, sure. like, yeah. it takes a little bit more mental stress, I think that I kind of prefer it. But anyway, that yeah. was long side tangent for that. Um, Dipper realizes in this moment that Wendy is, he might not see Wendy again uh, if she has to leave and not be able to work at the shack. And... Uh, Seuss is just like, oh yeah, especially because Dipper has this big crush on you, Calyptus trees. Tries bad. to cover it so bad. So bad. I think it's pretty funny though, because Wendy definitely just has the look on her face like, yeah, like, come on, man. I know. Let's just not, can we just not bring that up, you know? Yes. Can we just and not talk about that's it? That's the first time I think I've seen the appropriate reaction from Wendy about all that, in my opinion. That's fair. And uh, Robbie then just shows up trying to win her love back and she runs away. And I think that's the end of any yeah, time that we thing. see Wendy in the, the episode. The funny thing about that, though, was Robbie going, 
<laughs> Robbie had some really funny lines in that scene. He's like, he's holding up a boombox. He's like, could you please hurry? My skinny arms can't hold this boombox up very long. That was a good one. And then he also says like, did you get my texts? Should I send more texts? And that's like such a desperate like person thing to do. And I love that. Um, oh man. Yeah. Just trying to force something to happen. Oh, it's, it is cringy, it, but yeah. it's, it makes you feel. We've all seen it happen. We've all seen someone force a text. It's bad. Yeah. If you're that guy, yeah. it's okay. It's okay. You'll get pat. You'll grow up and, you know, look back and laugh or cry, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like most of us have probably done it at some point in our youth, to be honest. So I don't know. I don't know about that, but. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you don't have to admit it. <laughs> but I, think... I don't know. Anyway. Man. I, I was too shy to do stuff like that. I'm not going to like text someone over and over again. You know what well, I mean? Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. Like, I, I wasn't the harassing text kind of awkward. I was the don't text you at all kind of awkward. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I guess there's different waves of it. Yeah. Uh, different waves of awkwardness. Anyway, uh, so now the it's on the table for everybody. Oh, man, like, this. there's some serious ramifications here. Um, you know, because Wendy can be gone, but in Seuss's, uh, Abuelita's house again, they're brainstorming, and... We start to get the hint that Grunkle Stan is not sure how to handle this situation as their guardian. And not only do we have to worry about Wendy leaving, but we might have to worry about Dipper and Mabel having to leave as well. We get so much emotion from Grunkle. This is the scene where he talks to Dipper's parents on the phone. And like, you know, they ask him like, hey, can we order pizza? And he pulls out his pockets and there's no money. And like, I so felt that so hard. Like, like, crap, dude, I can't, I can't. I can't take care of my family right now. Like that is such a hard thing. And that's like, a, that's just such a real issue that people deal with. Not because like there's some crazy monster stealing your prop. Well, actually capitalism. Yeah. It is kind of like some crazy monster stealing your property actually. <laughs> yeah. It, it's got a lot of gravity to it. And I'm not saying that as the pun, but I guess, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the scene. It's just sad. Like there's it's not just sad. And he says, we're getting you bus tickets home. And I'm like, uh, whoa. Or maybe he doesn't say that quite yet, but he alludes to it. Um, and no, then, I mean, he kind of, he kind of does. Cause he's, he walks up sadly and they're playing. He basically tells them, uh, you know, we got to talk. Yeah. And he does flat out say, I can't take care of you. Cause my house and my job are gone and he's got the bus tickets. And he says the best thing is for them to be with their parents. Yeah. Um, and he, he actually gives up and walks away. And, and I'm like, whoa. That's heavy, dude. And obviously Dipper and Mabel are immediately like, we'll find a way. Kind of like bring back some levity. But we'll get back. The, the levity gets crapped on later. <laughs> yeah, little note here. Seuss chases him and is like, Mr. Pines, you have to reconsider. And Seuss is very genuine in that moment too. Like, he doesn't want to see his buds go. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, it is what it is. It's hard. Sometimes you just, like, can you imagine being a parent and being like, I don't have the money to take care of this kid anymore. I actually have to put them up for adoption because I can't do this financially. Oh, gosh. That's, a, that's America, yeah. dude. That is America in a nutshell. Sorry, okay. Yeah, so anywho, meanwhile, Gideon throws a picture of the Pines family in the fire and with a very evil look reads through Journal 2, which, as we remember from the past, he has his hands on. Dipper has Journal 3 and Gideon has Journal 2. Um, yes. And something surprising here, Gideon's dad comes up to him and like makes a quip about him reading this book all the time or whatever. And Gideon tells his dad the truth about the book, at least what he knows. Yeah. 
Gideon has not been straightforward with his dad. I think that actually isn't that surprising. I, we kind of have a parallel because actually Dipper hasn't told Grunkle about any of it either. <laughs> well, I, and that's the thing. I'm surprised that Gideon's not keeping it a secret like Dipper. Oh, like, you're right. Why isn't he continuing to keep it a secret? Yeah, uh, what? You, you know why? It's because we need to know what's going on and he has to tell somebody for us to figure it out. He can't just be yelling at himself. You know? Yeah, if if we were going to squint and say that there's a narrative reason for it, it might just be because Gideon at this point is so, uh, he's feeling his power so much that he doesn't feel like there's a risk anymore. He basically feels okay. like he can do whatever he wants. I, I could see that. Like, he's getting so close, he might as well just tell his dad, because like, ah, what's his dad going to do? He can, yeah, I, I've got control of him. I could see that. I think that's, that's justifiable. Sure, um, but th- thanks to him telling his dad, the audience does get to hear. Uh, yeah. A bit of the story of the book, and that's that it was written many years ago by a brilliant unknown author who has learned secrets too powerful for one man. And we know that he had hid his journals separately, because if the journals were to come together, it would unleash unbelievable power. Now, Gideon wants the shack because he believes that journal one is hidden somewhere inside, but what he does not know is that there is a journal three, because logically... You know, think about it. He's got number two. So your head doesn't necessarily go to a third one. You go to whatever came first. Uh, And even though this isn't explicitly stated yet, we know which journal Gideon is looking for. And it's journal one. That is true. And I I think that is interesting, though, because it does make me think, like, if you did end up with all three, what if there was still a four? You know what I mean? Like the numbers, not like numbers stopped. Now that you know you were wrong once, you might never know if you have all of them. That's some, that's some, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I had yeah. that thought while we were watching, like, wait a minute, when do you stop then? Maybe it's just an addiction. He starts like losing his mind and looking for books forever when there's no more. Man, you know what would have been the funniest thing ever? If he wrote one, two, four instead, that would have been brilliant. Oh, that's good. So random story that I heard from um, one of my teachers back in high school, I guess him one too. this this actually thought of the same story, which is why I said it. (laughs) Okay, yeah, there's an incredible prank. And to be honest, I don't know if he actually did this or if he just told everybody the story. I've heard this prank being done in other ways, too. I've heard other people tell the same story from other schools and they all say it's their senior prank. And I'm like, "I I feel like someone made this up but I don't care. Yeah, either they made it up or they stole the idea from somebody else. Um, but anyway, the idea is that they unleashed five pigs into the school and painted one, two, three, and five so that the staff spent the rest of the time looking for pig number four. Yeah, and which... the school got closed down all day so because obviously they can't have wild pigs running around. So they got they were in like lockdown or like school was canceled or something. Sure. Hysterical idea. I think that is not the kind of thing that would fly now. You'd, you'd probably get expelled for a prank like that. I feel like it depends on where you live. If you live in a place where there's enough people with pigs that it would be questionable who did it, I think you could pull it off. If you didn't get caught, maybe. But I think the rules, maybe back in the day, it would just be like a talking to. How would you get caught? You just release a bunch of pigs. I mean, the pigs are going to have to go somewhere. I guess not. Okay. Yeah, dude. But that's bad. If the pigs don't have a home anymore, hopefully they get adopted by a it's better not family. It's not responsible. I mean, chances are most people who farm pigs eat them. So. Oh, God. All right. Well, we're going to move on from this discussion. I don't want to think about that. Wow. Um, wow. Are you a vegetarian? Stop crying. I know. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, Dipper and Mabel 
they are fired up to try to figure out a solution. So they bring a pair of binoculars to the scene of Gideon land, and they do see the two security guards there keeping watch. Um, but Dipper, because he's got journal three, goes ahead and takes a look through, sees what he could maybe do to beat Gideon. And he finds a blueprint for a futuristic super weapon, but Mabel says, no, nah, that's boring. So we're going to move on from that really quick. Forget it. Yeah, Narrative doesn't matter. That. Narrative <laughs> doesn't matter. I, I like, I like Mabel's whole personality throughout this whole scene too. Like every little silly thing Dipper reads, she's like, yeah, let's do that. And I very much related to Mabel in that moment. I'm like, dude, honestly, I would probably also be a little bit stoked to just try literally every single thing in that journal. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, there's so much to look through. But Mabel's also thinking kind of logically, right? Where it's, you know, if we're going to beat the guards, we're going to need support. So she's thinking, how could we get some kind of army? And Dipper turns to a page. Again, we're back to referencing the first episode. I love when we go from a first episode to a finale reference. It's the gnomes. We're thinking of the gnomes. I love also when they say the gnomes, Mabel just kind of pulls on her shirt collar and is like, oh, like... Maybe we, maybe, can we think of maybe another plan? Like that awkward, like, oh, this guy kind of hit on me one time. Like, I'd really rather not actually talk to them. That is also a very real emotion that I felt before. And very valid. Um, yeah. But they do decide to do it. And as we get to the gnomes, we see Jeff, the one who tried to marry Mabel in a squirrel bath. Dude, this whole scene is ridiculous. And also, we found, uh, when my, my partner and I were watching this together, and she pointed out that, um, the squirrels or the the voice of the gnomes is also Alex Hirsch. And I was like, wait a minute, how many voices in this are? Because we were like, oh, that's the voice of Seuss. And I was like, I think the voice of Seuss is Alex Hirsch. And then yep. we looked it up. Dude, Alex Hirsch does like so many voices in this show. Like I knew that, but I didn't know exactly how many. He's just like a million side characters. He does Seuss, he does Grunkle and Bill Cipher. Oh, I didn't know about Bill Cipher. That's the yeah. one I was not sure about. I he does not all of those, dude. And there were yeah. other ones that I wrote down, too. I actually lost track of where my notes are. But even still, like, so talented of a voice actor amidst all of this, too. Yeah, good touch. Um, yeah. As Jeff is in the squirrel bath, he says, this is normal for gnomes, which we actually know to be true because uh, in Journal 3, the original author had written about the fact that they take squirrel baths. We talked wow. about that back in the day. Um, yeah, that, that's, um, I, I don't, didn't question that because it was so funny. And that's all. Good. <laughs> so <laughs> Jeff, of course, his first thought is, oh, Mabel must be here because she changed her mind about marrying me. Uh, gross. Oh, dude. Gross. Really gross. Um, but no, she's actually there, obviously, because she needs help. And he is immediately snarky about it. Like, oh, you want to help me after you left me at the altar? Uh, excuse gross. me. Gross. Excuse me, Mr. Gaslight. Uh, yeah. say, you showed up pretending to be a teenage boy. And we're actually a, no, a bunch of gnomes. Yeah, you were a bunch of gnomes. Uh, not just one gnome. Like, why did you go in a group? You know? You know? And then say, oh, you left me at the altar after I pretended to be a teenager. Like, what the hell? Oh, my goodness. I will say his reaction was still pretty funny. Like, he did try to, like, be honest and be like, hey, man, like, I just want to let you know we're a bunch of gnomes. He did, like, actually. <laughs> did, like, I'm just saying, I want to give a little credit where it's due. <laughs> Yeah, they were trying to have, like, the very soft reveal, which was very funny at the time. But yeah, it was funny. It, it tried. Case, yeah, Jeff deserves negative points for this. Um, I, either I way, agree. I agree. Uh, Dipper and Mabel offer a deal. Um, Mabel says that she'll, 
She'll find him a new wife named Gideon with white hair. And he goes, oh, a mature woman, huh? Shmebulot, get me my cologne. And then also Shmebulot goes, Shmebulot. And he goes, is that all you can say? He goes, Shmebulot. And I was like, whoa, that's kind of rough. Yeah, he would love to be able to communicate, but he can't. Wow. Mm. It was a Game of Thrones joke. What? Game of Thrones joke. There was a character that could only say odor. Oh, I thought it was Hodor. But maybe, I've never seen it. Yeah, Yeah, I read it. Yeah, I only read it. And it was garbage, so. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, actually, Jeff decides to agree to this deal. Because, of course, he doesn't really know who Gideon is. Uh, Also... (laughs) And thank God, because the way that he approached that situation from top to bottom was just very cringe. Um, Back in Greasy's diner, uh, Stan wants the most expired, strongest apple cider that he can find because he's having a rough time. Uh, The strongest expired apple cider, a.k.a. fermented. Oh, yeah. And interestingly, it turns out Seuss is the waiter because uh, he's been working part-time jobs. He's been a grave digger, a bus driver, and now a cook. Yeah. He's he's an everything man, honestly. Seuss is truly, secretly the most talented character in the show. He is. He is multi-talented. Uh, he even puts out a fire in the restaurant. I Probably forgot about that. Wait a minute. No, he, he, he didn't put it out. He got the lower half of his body cut on fire and he didn't put it out. They just transitioned to another scene. Oh. Well, he's not great at everything, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he still has the job, so. Well, while he's trying to put out the fire, Stan calls him a good man-child. But events about the town loving Gideon and hating him. um, Not hating Seuss, hating himself, Stan. And uh, Seuss is there for him, even though the lower half of his body is on fire. So, So we go to the scene where I don't even know how to transition out of that. You're better at the like, I, what do I even say? Okay. So next thing that happens, um, Dipper and Mabel go storm the mystery shack to try to get the deed back with the gnomes. And I'm not going to lie. I actually totally forgot this entire pop plot line with the gnomes and I forgot what happened. And I'm like, wait, there's no way the climax of this episode was the gnomes actually work. I, I, I was half expecting the gnomes to work. Like I was like, there's no way, there's no way the gnomes work. And I'm glad that they didn't because that would have been way too silly. But anyway, so the gnomes, long story short, the gnomes like storm the thing, they break down the fence, they knock out the security guards and Gideon just blows a dog whistle and it just happens to work on the gnomes, which is such a bummer. Yeah, and then it the didn't have to work. And the gnomes were like, the gnomes say one of the best lines in the whole show too, which is, oh no, this beautiful woman is has power over us or something like that. And he's like, I am not a girl. He's like, really? But your hands are so soft. Do you like moisturize or? Yeah. <laughs> Great line. Great line. <laughs> it, it is It is very good. And it's funny because we did bring in the gnomes for this purpose and it was played off very, very quickly. Like this was an idea and it did not work. Yeah. Yeah. Like they failed. And their failure not only was bad because it didn't work, Dipper drops the book and Gideon gets it. And every, like, the next 12 notes I wrote in my book are just, oh, you're going to have to bleep this out, sorry. Oh, this happens. Oh, this happens. I'm like, because I forgot about a lot what was going on. I'm like, oh, he got the, well, first thing I said was, oh, the gnomes actually helped. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, he got the book. (laughs) Seven, really? 
<laughs> Sorry, man, I'm making you work. That's all right. <laughs> um, I, I, I was I was very surprised. This is such a good... The plot is very good. You know, like, I am on the ride of this story at this point. You know, all of the little things like gnomes and, and some of the sillier things, like, my suspension of disbelief is super hard at this point in the story because it's so tightly written. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and now Gideon not only has control of the gnomes because this whistle got them on his side, oh, but... Yeah. Now he's got control of the journal as well, and uh, the stakes of that are very high. And what's interesting is the way that Gideon exerts his power over Dipper in this moment, for a lot of reasons. You know, he just goes, you had it the whole time, and to think I never considered you a threat. And or that's actually... because He said, I, to think I did consider you a threat. He's saying that you're not actually a threat, you just had the book. You're not actually talented, you were just cheating. Yeah, Gideon does start going for Dipper. He's like, every victory that you had is just because of this book. Yeah. And, you know, Dipper tries to say, oh, give it back. Or, and Gideon's like, dude, this, what? this, yeah, this line that Gideon reads is like, like, have you ever really, I, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I've definitely had that feeling like, God dang it, I wish I could just punch this person in the face so bad right now. And you, but you can't for whatever reason, like cultural, social, there's a bunch of reasons why you. Like you can't just punch someone in the face. And I could see that so hard in Dipper, dude. It was so, I read that so hard because I felt that way too. And that's how good of a line it was. Because yeah, Gideon is just like, what are you going to do, Dipper? What are you going to do about it? Huh? What are you going to do about it? Like yeah. the literal most overconfident dickish way that you could read it. And I'm just like, God, I wish I could drop. This is the dropkick award of the century right now. But you can't. Yeah. You really can't. You are like, all of the pressure is against you and you're just locked in this anger and there's nothing you could do about it dude it was so well done i'm still tilted no muscles no brains face it you're nothing without this dude oh my god so so rough i felt so much genuine emotion in that scene it was so good so with now Gideon feeling this power on an even higher level than he already did, he blows the whistle again and the gnomes carry Dipper and Mabel back to the forest before scattering away. And Jeff says to do your own dirty work next time. I guess, but like, I don't care about anything that you have to say, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff has no ability to high road right now. But I will just say like, they give up. And like, you feel the failure of this whole thing. Like, it feels hope. And this is wrapping up season one. As far as we know, we're getting a cliffhanger on a major failure and Gideon having the upper hand at the start of the next season at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and Dipper is buying what Gideon is selling. He's like, yeah, the journal always has the plan. I don't. He's like, I'm screwed. And even Mabel trying to be optimistic is, she's like, I've been in this situation before. You're trying to say the right thing. You're trying to like look on the bright side and you realize in this case, there just isn't one. Yeah. You're like, oh and yeah, uh, I guess we just have to go home. Everything we lost. And they get on the bus to go home straight up. Yeah. And we see a sad Grunkle Stan watch as he drops them off and the bus takes off and they leave Gravity Falls. Yeah. Also, we see that McGucket is building Gideon's robot. And I'm like... What the heck, McGucket? <laughs> what? Yes. There's what? something there's something in Journal 3. Dipper talks about this, and he's just saying, I guess McGucket will just build stuff for anyone that'll hang out with him. That's pretty funny. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, funny. That's a good friend uh, to have. But we do also find out Gideon's like, I did it. I did all the crazy evil business. 
And then he puts the book down. He's like, wait, it's book number three. This is not number one. Oh, and he freaks out. He's like, I need to make sure Dipper and Mabel don't leave. So he hops in the robot to go like stop the bus to get, see if the, he can steal journal one from Dipper and Mabel. Cause he think they might have them, which in all honesty, if I was Gideon, I probably would have done the same thing. Interesting. So you think that was the right call based on his villain arc and what he's trying to accomplish? I mean, it was it was at least a safe decision to make. You know what I mean? I don't know if he mm-hmm. needed to go with the robot. I feel like he could have just like driven. It's a bus, right? Like, why couldn't he just gotten his dad to drive him? You know, so maybe a little overkill. But, you know, I get it. You're going with the style. You're in the hunger craze. I can relate. You know, you're doing the villain arc thing. You got a new robot. You want to take him for a spin. You know? So sure. <laughs> yeah, the Gideon bot that McGucket has built is gigantic. And we did sort yeah. of see it when Gideon Land was being introduced, but you don't get a hint at the time that it's a robot, really. Um, aside from maybe it looks a little bit metallic. But either way, like, it is a functional, huge robot. Like, bigger than the Mystery Shack itself. Um, and something that's very fun about it is when Gideon goes inside to be able to operate it, he's wearing motion capture technology, which is the type of animation really cool. that is used for um, movies like the Polar Express, where yeah, you're like covered actually ball. the Polar Express was the first animated movie that was fully done in that way, actually. Fun fact. Oh, didn't know that one. Um, by mm-hmm. the way, I know a lot of people hate on the Polar Express, but I love that movie. I'm just gonna say. It's a good movie. I will say that, like, it was the first movie to do that all the way through, and it looks like it was the first movie to do it all the way through. I won't sure. lie. But it's nice. Tom Hanks is cool. He plays, like, every character. I don't mind that. Yeah. So, Stan, Grunkle Stan, is beside himself. Uh, you know, he doesn't know any of this other stuff is going on, but he is stuck watching infomercials, no friends or family. And this is interesting to me, actually, because theoretically stan hasn't had much friends or family around for a long time you know he's only had these kids here in his life for a couple months maybe and he feels the loneliness probably on a level where he didn't feel it before because now he has something to compare it to well yeah the difference is he's lost something versus he chose kind of well i guess we can't talk about other losses that he may have had in the past but you know theoretically speaking as far as we know he was choosing to be kind of a ruffian in the past versus now he's lost something that he was trying really hard to maintain you know yeah and he looks at one of the gideon pins that were teased in the initial commercial from early in the episode and we didn't mention his hearing aid has been acting up the whole episode and he's like why does this keep happening why is my hearing aid acting up and then he holds the pin he's like oh my god i could save the mystery shack and he kisses seuss's grandma yes um i don't think this is great from stan (laughs) i don't know probably not the kind of thing you should just do it's made for a comedic moment you shouldn't just ask him, buddy. Yeah. He should have asked. And she should have yeah. said, yes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I would have said yes. If, if Grunkle Stan looked at me, he was like, boy, can I kiss you for this moment? And I knew him, you know, like I knew his character. I didn't think it was like a creepy thing. I knew he's just overwhelmed with emotion. Sometimes you just got to kiss somebody, you know? I don't know, man. I feel like he'd smell real bad. No, it, I would. I mean, I would. it would be like I'd be taking one for the team. Don't get me wrong. I get you. Okay, well. Either way, uh, Abuelita <laughs> says she's going to go vacuum her face uh, like yeah. she vacuumed jelly up early on when Mabel Which is, the jar. truth be told, the appropriate response. Sure. Um, so that's all we know about the pin for now. Just that Stan was looking at it, his hearing aid went off, and he had an idea. Either way, we go back to the kids that are sadly in the bus. 
Mabel wants to play bus seat treasure hunt with weird looking things, which is a little bit of a cute summer moment. That was actually my favorite scene in this whole episode. Wow, really? Tell me. That was legitimately my favorite scene because they're all defeated. But like Mabel is, and, and you know, it's such, I've had, it's such a real kid moment. You know what I mean? Dipper's like, nah, man, I'm not in the mood. I'm, I'm bummed. Like I had a hard day. You know, it doesn't need to be this crazy thing for anyone to feel that way, you know? And Mabel's like, hey, let's play like, you know, I, she essentially is playing I Spy. You know, she's like, let's just play I like Road Trip I Spy. How many kids have not tried it? You know, you do these things on, on road trips. You know, you play these little games with each other. And the way that Mabel delivered, the way that the voice actors delivered it, and the way that it was written, and it seemed so like, I don't know, I just like felt like, and again, amongst all of this other stuff going on, we get this, they take the time to do this human moment to show the relationship between Dipper and Mabel that's so sweet, and it it makes us care so much more about the characters when we have these little moments. It makes us care so much more about the plot and the emotions of everything, because we feel for them. We feel like they're real characters. We believe that they have personalities. We get sucked into their identity. And it's little moments like that that we don't think about that seriously create the foundation for that. And that tight writing and able to include those moments in super densely, you know, plot heavy episodes is so awesome and matters so much to making a, like, not just a good show, but a stellar show. You know what I mean? And because of that, like, I'm just going to say it right now, I gave Mabel my two points because of how she was able to maintain so much character um, alongside all of the plot in this episode. Wow. So let me ask you, when writers are going about creating animated projects, I mean, maybe we could expand it to any project. Yeah. Do you think that these little moments are integral for a great show? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one reason why I love Adventure Time, too, because, like, Adventure Time is just filled with little moments and little jokes. And every once in a while, you just get like almost a little moment where Finn and Jake are like, hey, Jake, yeah, what's up, bud? You're really cool today. I really appreciate you. Oh, thanks, bud. And I'm like, that is just the small colloquial, like love of humanity and love of just interacting with another human being and another sentient creature. Like those little moments, because those are the moments we love in life too. You know, when you go to the grocery store and someone says, hey, I really like your haircut. That goes such a long way and the fact that we have little moments like that in these shows it gives us that feeling vicariously you know what i mean like just seeing that happy little interaction goes such a long way towards you feeling a human connection to somebody you know whether it's in show or even just how you interact with people in real life you know what i mean wow yeah i'm wondering if that's a commonality of many of the great animated shows that we have come to know and Newer if it's ones, a i think it yeah, maybe like a subtle thing that not everybody thinks about, but it could be a tiny secret to success that is not as visible as some of the other things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a lot of shows that you and I have been watching on our like YouTube channel that a lot of that's the case. You know, even even in when it's a weird thing like Flapjack, when they just throw in a small detail that's kind of demented if you're going that route. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. subtleties that are worked into things are is so good these days. I love it. Nice. Well, this happy moment is interrupted by a giant robot. See, that's the thing. Like there's, and then you're like, oh yeah, these are human beings, but this is going on. And then you're sucked in. You're, there's not a moment where you're taken out of this episode. There wasn't a moment where I was taken out of this episode. 
personally. Amazing. Yeah, this the Gideon bot is here. And this actually climax yeah. is insane, dude. This is like anime levels of mech hype. This this is way more badass than it has any right to be. This is a 10-year-old, well-moisturized boy with an American flag pin. There is no reason why we should be intimidated by this guy at all. And this is actually a like probably the craziest climax that we've seen in Gravity Falls, which has already been notorious for having awesome climaxes. Yeah, dude, I uh, I was going to say the same thing. I thought this chase scene was so epic and so yeah. gripping. Um, also, we find out Seuss is the bus driver, which is hilarious. Yeah, because he mentioned being a bus driver as <laughs> yeah. one of his part-time jobs while he was the waiter. Yeah, uh, so he ends up being the getaway driver again. There, there are a lot of things that in this episode are like characters given an awesome arc. Like even though Wendy and Robbie were written out early, that actually did summarize their arc in the show pretty well. You know what I mean? Like they actually concluded their purpose in the show well. Seuss being the like not only the comic relief with the, you know, how they open being in his house and everything and giving him character and, you know, like we talked about that. He's the bus driver. He's doing these other things like we see him as he's actually been in the show. Kind of a goofball, but genuinely helpful in clutch moments. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and no, I mean, I'm with you. This entire scene with Seuss, he goes into action. You know, like, he tells them to hang on, and there's such a good sequence of them avoiding the Gideon bot as they circle up a mountain in a bus called the Speedy Beaver. Yeah, which is awesome. <laughs> and they almost go off a cliff. Seuss saves it. Yeah, and, and that is so intense to see, like, an actual cliffside fight. This is life and death for real right now. Like, this is a genuinely precarious situation. And to have this much tension for an action scene in a kid's show at this time was not all that common. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah, dude. It, this is, I would consider, you know, a rarity of this specific generation. I think Gravity Falls was one of the first new cartoons that came along that took Western animation seriously, yeah. at least for this target demographic. And I, I just think that, you know, this scene encapsulates what that means so well. Uh, plot wise, the robot goes ahead and lifts the roof off of the bus. Seuss yeah. is checking for an emergency manual. And he's like, what's the closest to the present situation? Um, raccoon in the engine or angry grandparent won't leave bus. Probably that one. Probably that one, yeah. Oh, I, I just love thinking about the two, like, two scenarios that need uh, to be in a manual. Just because I remember at the Tomorrowland Speedway having an operating guide. And it's like, if it's in the manual, you know what's happened. You know, if a car has driven around the track without a person in it, you know that it's happened. Wow. Wow, that's a good point. Fun fact, one time dad got a uh got to look at a uh fireman's manual back in the, you know, when he was younger, probably like mm -hmm. in the 70s, and there was a a section in it for UFO invasions. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Right after I said, "Oh, it, it could only be there if it matters." Yeah. I mean, there could be I, I had to say that. Wanted to be very prepared. Uh yeah. Well, but, he had a, a friend who was a firefighter and he let him look at it. And I'm just like, oh, that's a cool detail. Sure. I like By the that. way, I, I have in fact seen what we call ghost cars drive around the speedway track without a person in them. And it's a pretty wild sight. That's awesome. Also, it's very cool. Wait, how does it work? Does it just like the gas gets stuck or something? 
Essentially, because there's only one pedal in the car and you push down to go and then you pull your foot off it to stop. And if it's stuck and there's also an outside pedal that can do the same function. So if either one of them gets stuck down, it can just go and it won't stop until it hits another car and stops. I have to be honest and ask you something. Yes. Is that objectively the worst ride at Disney World? Um, Disney top, World? Top, top, top five Disney at least. Disney World, yes, I would say it's probably objectively the worst one. Disneyland, I would not, because there's a lot more scenery involved. I think the biggest knock against it, especially at Disney World, is that they are like pure gas engines and they're just bad for the environment. Like, this should not exist now. Um, oh, no, don't tell me that. <laughs> whereas, at least Disneyland, they drive hybrids. Um, they drive but, hybrids at Disneyland. Yeah, essentially. That. Uh, well, and I think, I don't know if I already said this, but it's called Autopia in Disneyland. It's called the Tomorrowland yeah. Speedway in Florida. But Oh, yeah, um, that's right. Forgot about that. Ours in Disney World has, like, no scenery. But was it the most fun I've ever had working a job? One of, Definitely among the most fun things I've done. Wow, that's cool. That's awesome, yeah. man. That's cool that you get to say that. I love that. Bad ride, very fun to work. Space Mountain, cool. great ride, not fun to work for me. I Other that. people feel differently, but I did not like it. I'll bet it's busy. It's very busy and it's very dark. So if you're stuck inside all day, it becomes very somber. Like not having sunlight in yeah. that kind of environment, it creates a culture where people are like just not gloomy. doing great. Yeah, very gloomy. I think that yeah. if you're very likely to see gloomy cast members working at Space Mountain because they're surrounded by the darkness all day. Take vitamin D if you work nights, people. It'll save your life, trust me. Nice. Uh, so Mabel and Seuss try running away on the train track bridge that overlooks the town. Um, this is another wild sequence. They're, like, this is a precarious train track that we've seen in a couple scenes leading up to it. Yeah. Actually, I think, I don't remember where it is in the series, but this cliff was created by a UFO crashing through it, we find out. Oh, I don't really, yeah, I think maybe that comes up at some point, and not really a spoiler. Just a cool, thing, just... just a cool detail. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they're related. That that does um, confirm the existence of UFOs also in the canon, which I think is cool. Definitely. Something that we need to talk about for Journal 4 at some point. Mm -hmm. um, Gideon Bot walks across this precarious train track following them despite its size. Oh my gosh, dude. And seeing this huge rope, like you feel weight when it steps, you feel it. They're giving you the sound effects. They're giving you the animation it's supposed to have. Like it has weight. And like, you know, they're fighting. <laughs> he, you know, this big robot has these two little kids on a cliff. This is scary. Like I'm legitimately looking at this like, dude, these kids could legit die right now super easily. And um, uh, what's his name? Gideon throws Dipper behind him and he like lands just barely on the cliff. And like, we get a little like nosebleed from uh, Dipper, not an anime nosebleed nerds. Don't worry. He gets a little nosebleed and like, you can see that like, he's a little hurt and shaken from this experience because he like, you know, Gideon yells like, I'm going to take Mabel and she's going to be my queen. And he like walks the other way down the train track. And Dipper's like, he looks, he looks dejected and his lip quivers like he's about to fucking cry. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, oh my gosh, dude, this is like, you really, and, and what, again, credit to the animators for giving that much emotional range for a 10 year old boy in like three seconds of animation, you know? And he starts to walk away like I lost again. And this part is like so crazy. 
he turns around and he just runs full speed, jumps off the cliff, and dives into the robot, tackling Gideon, making the robot roll with them because of the motion stuff on the inside. And dude, this fight scene legitimately had me like on the edge of my seat. Like, and I've seen this before. I know what's gonna happen. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Yeah, between the pterodactyl fight with Runkle Stan and then this yeah. moment of Dipper yeah, that's diving at the Gideon bot and just like crashing into the inside of it. Um, and Gravity Falls in the face. He yes. finally gets to punch him in the face. I know it's not good to advocate for revenge, everybody. Break the cycle of hate is what I truly believe in, but I'm a human being. Sometimes you feel like you got to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> and in this case, it felt pretty satisfying to watch as a viewer. After everything that Gideon has done. And after he also says that he plans to rule the town with Mabel as his queen. He's still on that whole kick. I'm I know. Like, you can get punched. I was like, what a gross detail for you to say amidst all of this going on. I hate this guy. And the wild thing is, though, like, you know, they're fighting. Dipper beats him by getting the bot to punch himself. But it spirals out and falls off the bridge as Seuss yeah. watches. And the kids seem to go with it. And... So from this point forth, we get a, every character, every main character in the show actually gets a wrap up, right? I told, we talked about Seuss. Seuss gets his wrap up. Wendy and Robbie have their wrap up pretty much, right? Mm -hmm. We get Dipper's climax because he doesn't use the book to be a hero. He just punches little Gideon in the face and like does this super epic thing and actually saves the day and he doesn't need the book which is more a confidence thing than anything because obviously we the audience knew that he could do that but he didn't and, and that's important for his you know personal emotional character development and mabel saves the day because she used the freaking grappling hook to literally stop them from falling to their deaths so awesome like she actually saves the day too with her silliness just like, you know, we've seen in other episodes explored. It's so good. Um, it's incredible. And, the you know, the boat, or sorry, uh, the Gideon bot hits the ground and it does cause the explosion. But, yeah. you know, like you said, Mabel and Dipper are good. And Dipper has his journal back. The cops show up to the scene of the explosion. Gideon is okay. There's Dipper did not get the journal back, actually. Oh, he didn't yet? No, this is an important detail because he never gets it back, actually. Hmm, okay, let's talk. He kind about of gets it back. We'll, we'll get we'll get to there in a second. Uh, yes. So Gideon now is saying to the cops that you know the Pines twins tried to attack him, and originally the cops start to believe this. Um, yeah, because again they have a precedent. They're, yeah, they're under the spell. Them in the whole town, they think Gideon is the greatest. Wow, it's almost like politicians have a sort of economic hold on the police force. That's crazy. I can't. I, that's not real. Anyway, um, I think that. <laughs> The nutty thing is that uh, Grunkle Stan shows up and then we get his, you know, plot saving character arc too. Because we, you know, last we saw him, he was bursting out because he thought he had an idea. And the whole town shows up because this giant robot falls. So it's not only the cops that show up. The whole town is there now too. And they're all ready to side with Gideon. And, he, and Grunkle goes, wait, you have to hear me out look at this and he kicks down the rope now i will say there's no way he should have known that these cameras were in the robot that's a little silly but whatever he kicks down the robot stomach and th there's tv screens that have all of like recordings from everyone in the town and it was because the buttons had cameras on them so that his psychic pet so that he could do the psychic thing um which is like actually a really incredibly written plot device 
Just saying, like, I did not see that coming from that little pin thing at the beginning. And that was a very cool way to wrap that whole thing up. You know what I mean? And a wild invasion of privacy. <laughs> like, I, oh, can you I mean, that doesn't even finding out. I, I would literally not even be surprised. It might even be hard for me to be mad. I would be so not surprised. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Well, in this case, uh, I think it's messed up. Like don't get me wrong. But like, you know, I'm kind of desensitized. Like everybody, people don't, you know, people have Alexas in their house and don't think about, do you have, hey, Alexa. Oh, no, you've got headphones on. Yeah. Good try. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. trying to trigger it again. But I'm sure that you got some people in the audience. So that's great. Yeah. Hey, there we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, Stan is able to expose the secret and the townspeople finally realize, oh, my gosh, you did this to us. Like, you invaded our privacy. You are watching us. Like, that's so messed up. And they become an angry mob. And Wow. If only that's actually how people would react. I mean, I think that this is a very specific moment where it is exposed in a very clear way. That's true. Um, That's true. And there's such a good scene where we go to Tyler Cute Biker, who only says one line in the show all the time, and he sheds a tear, and he says, get him. Get him. (laughs) And he is, Tyler Cute Biker, with his line, has given everybody permission to be an angry mob. Dude, even he got his character arc completed. Yes, and he's got another actual uh, end to his plot, which will come later, which is an amazing wrap-up, too. Uh, And again, this is a character with just one line over and over again and is able to sort of, like, bring it home in this finale. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just wrote so creative, badass, epic. I wrote a bunch of profanity. I was very hyped watching this. It was a very fun thing to watch. I was pretty much just, like, screaming on the page, like, oh! this is awesome you know um it all it all went really well everybody got their arc um you know everybody every character that was mainly involved kind of got to help play a part in saving the day like everyone mattered you know what i mean and that's one thing that i love is like being able to write in every main character with like super purpose in such a heavy episode oh man so good and gideon gets arrested he actually fails here and Stan kind of just like picks him up and shakes him and the deed falls out of his pocket and he's got and the, the deed back. Because, and oh, the book falls out here? Mm-hmm. I know yeah, that's, that's, where journal, that's where journal two falls though, right? I thought that Dipper got journal three back before this. It, oh, way, maybe he did. Yeah, because this was did, just one but, book that fell. But Grunkle picks up that book for sure. He does. He very quickly picks up journal two. Um, and the last we see Gideon, he is shouting from the back of a cop car. Kind of like saying he'll get revenge or whatever he says. Classic Gideon. No, mm-hmm. no surprises there. Played out well. Again, Gideon gets his whole plot line too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, we get a new story again, just like we got in the beginning of the episode. But this time it's twisted on the other side, where the story is local hero Stanford Pines has exposed Gideon as a fraud. And Stan gets to tell the news that the Mystery Shack is back. And there's such mm-hmm. a good montage of them rebuilding it. What a great finale culmination. Yeah, but it's not the full finale. We got more than that. True. So we, before we, we get, get there... Yeah, we get the cliffhanger that everybody was waiting for from the end of season one. We do. Um, as the business is thriving and Santa's, you know, signing autographs, telling people to buy merch, the kids are unpacking stuff in the room. And they decide at this moment, and Dipper does have the journal here, him and Mabel decide that they are going to tell Stan about the journal. And Stan enters the room 
and I guess he takes the book while Dipper is trying to get him to stop uh, because he's he finds the situation laughable. They're trying to tell him about it. And he's like, ah, so this is where you get all of your crazy ideas from. I remember watching that and being like, Grunkle, no. Like, no one, how could, how could anyone believe you at this point after everything that's happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, but he, he I, fools the kids. I guess technically he doesn't actually like, the only close to metaphysical experience I suppose he personally had on screen, correct me if I'm wrong, people, but I think the dinosaur is like the only one, and that's not actually that metaphysical, you know? Right, and that was his whole excuse, remember? That was yeah. him saying, oh, you know, that doesn't count because uh, that's not the paranormal, dinosaurs aren't paranormal or whatever he said. Yeah, I, which is technically a logical argument. It's like, okay, a dinosaur survived, big deal. <laughs> um. Yeah, but again, the kids are not alarmed here. Mabel says, you know what, Dipper? You're a hero without the journal. Uh, he's like, yeah, I still want it back, though. And Yeah, I uh, said that, too. She's like, you're a, hip, Dipper, you're a hero without the journal. My face was just like, okay, sure, I agree with you. But, like, you can't let that journal go, dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Mabel you says that she should... Yeah, she's sure he'll get it back. What would a boring old man want with it anyway? And just like episode one, we see Grunkle Stan go into a secret passage behind the vending machine on the first floor of the mystery shack. Oh my god. I shouldn't say this, probably, but I was... Oh, I hate saying this. Technically, okay, nobody judge me. I have, like, it was way more of an art collective than a fraternity, but technically I was in a fraternity in college. I know that that might sound really weird. I don't know. I feel like that is probably one of the weirdest things to tell people in my life, despite the fact that other things are probably weirder. But, really? like, that okay. was, yeah. And, you know, because fraternities get, like, super bad reps for being, like, really scummy places. And, like, I'm not going to, you know, start, like, defending that this was the best place on the planet or anything like that. But, like, there were a lot of really nice, good people there that tried to make a really safe place for a lot of people you know what i mean um sure. and and anyway we actually had a secret passage in the fraternity that was actually a vending machine i'm not joking you was that intentional because of gravity falls no this was built way before gravity the house was built like in the in the 50s or something but yeah there was oh. like the, there's like an old coke machine like an old styled coke machine that you could pull out of the wall and there was actually a hallway that went underneath the staircase to a hidden storage room well, that's incredible because Grunkle Stan also has a hidden room, but yeah. it's a boiler room with a bunch of computers and tech. And yeah, that's people... way cooler than mine. Ours just had a bunch <laughs> of crap in it. <laughs> that's right. I don't know if your room had Journal One as Stan pulls it out and we get the reveal that now, because Stan picked up Journal Two from Gideon, he took it from Dipper who revealed that he had it. And now he's had Journal 1 himself this whole time. So Gideon was not wrong that Journal 1 was in the chat. Um, after all these years, he has all three journals. And he sets them up in order to make a contraption. And just says, here we go. Well, he opens it to the page that was alluded to by Mabel and Dipper earlier. And he completes the puzzle and completes the whatever it was. Did they call it a weapon? I think they might have called it that, but I don't think it is a weapon. Uh, yeah, I think it was whatever their interpretation of it was. And I also wanted to say that when, when Grunkle does complete it, this big portal turns on and the lights shine on him. 
And it reminds me both of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the climax of that with the lighting and how they did it. And then it also reminds me of Stargate Atlantis. Ooh, okay, nice. Uh, I love the sci-fi references. Yeah. Um, but this is the end, people. Uh, Stan has put this together and we are closing season one like that, which is, I really think, a great ending. Yeah, um, and then the end credit scene is them like flipping through pages of the journal, which is also very stylistic and cool. Yes, more to come on that potentially, because uh, there's some extra cryptograms in this episode that may have come from that. Now, mystery plaque points. I, I, I said I gave yeah two, two for Mabel. I had to give two for Mabel because of how she's able to work beautiful, subtle, nuanced character development amidst all of this. And not that there aren't other people doing that too. She's just a great symbol for how expertly it's done. And I love that. Can I give my two points before you say you're just in case you gave the point to the same person? Cause I want to make this point. Yeah. Um, my two points go to Dipper this episode. And I feel like we have not actually given Dipper that many points over the course of the series. Um, but there was a little bit of what you were talking about before about Dipper's arc here and how he sort of realizes that he, he has this amazing epic moment where it's like, you're right. I don't need the journal. I'm okay on my own. And the reason that I think that's very powerful is not because of the literal part of that, but the symbolism that it represents for other people and how I think people oftentimes look at external sources to try to pull self-worth out of. If they can't look internally, they don't know where it is. They're like, oh, like maybe I can find that by, you know, finding a partner to date. Or I can find that uh, whether, you know, it's a journal or some material possession, a video game that's going to bring the happiness that I need. And a lot of the time that what we need is like a really good self-evaluation. And we are not fixed people. We can be a different person tomorrow than we were today. And there's Absolutely. nothing wrong with that. But the inner, uh, I guess, the, uh, the, the inner part of us that we might be searching for um, is not going to be found from external places. And I think that this um this story from dipper in this episode represented that really well and i think it did it in a way that wrapped up his entire way that he approached life from start of the season to the end and the fact that you gave two to mabel i thought it would be a good bookend to give dipper the other two because i do think they wrapped up both of their stories and for the record i gave mabel the other point because it's poetic to me that the two main characters of the series get these beautiful like little bow tie uh, storylines to wrap up their entire plots. So two to Dipper for me and one for Mabel. I like that. I, my number one, I have had written as Grunkle just because of the uh, plot progression, obviously, but I think you're right. I think I'm going to have to give my point to Dipper too. Cause that, that was just too awesome. Dipper punching Gideon in the face. I give Grunkle points for writing a pterodactyl. I got to give Dipper points for, for punching a robot boy worked worked for cool. me okay i love that uh end to the mystery plaque for now uh you know before we take this break i think that's a good way to close it now insights from journal three so yes. believe it or not from the story section here there's not that much more um at least nothing major so dipper talks some aesthetics about the gideon bot and draws it um you know, I, I said the thing about McGucket from before, uh, but there is a small section that just gives us a little bit, I don't know if you could call it really a post-credit scene, 
but just mm -hmm. a little bit of extra plot that we didn't get, which I think is worth reading because it's a very small section. Everything's back to normal now. Actually, it's better than normal. Gideon's in jail and everybody is in love with the Pines family. We were even interviewed by Chandra Jimenez on Good Morning Gravity Falls. Stan spent the whole time stealing shrimp from the craft services table. Everyone seems happy. Everybody but me. Half the summer is gone and I'm no closer to figuring out the big mysteries of Gravity Falls. Gideon wanted this journal so badly that he risked everything to get it. Why? I have no idea. He asked about journal one. From what I've read, there are two more journals. But where are they? I have no idea. What happened to the author? Is he still alive? Why are so many pages burned and ruined? I have no idea. I'm running out of time to figure this out. No more fooling around. If I'm ever going to get to the bottom of this, I need to find out what happened to the author. Time to get serious. Right here. Right now. Right after the grand reopening after party. I wonder what Wendy's going to wear. Oh, Dipper. Uh, so we do get this um, prompt from Dipper that just says, basically, okay, this is Dipper from season one transitioning into Dipper season two. I am driven, I'm ready, and I'm going to figure out what the heck is going on in this place. And uh, I think that's worth reading because, um, you know, it, it's Dipper. He realizes that something's up and he's not willing to just give up that thought just because Stan has now taken Journal 3 from him. That's Journal 3 for the week. To be honest, like, I I, I will say there's some cryptograms uh, that are sort of important within the journal that I've learned a little bit about. So I guess I can just talk about the cryptograms really quick. At this point, I realize that nobody cares about us spoiling them. Right after uh, Dipper, Mabel, and Seuss run out of a room in the episode, there is a cryptogram carved into a pipe under the floorboards. And that one says, this is somewhere during the episode, Bill is watching. Ooh, I like it. We do see that the bill that the triangle-shaped mirror is also in the uh, attic at the, top, at the end of the episode. I noticed. Oh, okay, that's really good. I, I missed that one. Um, inside Journal 3, uh, I guess there's a page that when decoded just reads, don't eat him. Maybe I need a little bit more context for that one, because I guess it's the page for, oh, the squash with a human face and emotions. Yeah, yeah, don't, um, eat the, don't eat the squash with human sentience. Yeah. Ah, okay, I think mean, that makes sense. And I guess during the end credits of the pages, there is something that says reverse the ciphers. I'm guessing that has something to do with the overall grand scale of the game that I'm not sure about. But the important one is the left-hand corner of the Journal 3 page that was shown in the, in the fiction, right? Like in the episode itself. Um, yeah. And it says... The portal, when completed, will open a gateway to infinite new worlds and herald a new era in mankind's understanding of the universe. Plus, it will probably get girls to start talking to me finally. Wow. That's... So we... Oh, scientific achievements. Uh, I, so I, I guess that was probably written by the author. The actual last end credit cryptogram that we get is also really good. And I'm not going to spoil what this means, but it just says... Search for the blind eye. Cute. I like it. Yeah, so the cryptogram stuff is good. Now, Lucas, when it comes to Journal 4 this week, I have, like, a rough idea of something that I could squint and see from the episode, but because this is our finale episode, I thought we have been talking about UFOs on and off a little bit through this podcast. Do you think it's time to talk about unidentified flying objects? Not aliens, necessarily. Oh, unidentified. No. What do you think? You want to expand? No, UFOs are stupid because all, I mean, philosophically, all you're asking is are there 
objects in the sky that are unidentified? And the answer is a simple yes, right? Maybe. I mean, we could you need to you need to at least include alien flying saucers. You know all what right, I mean? We're doing. All it's right, not all right, interesting it. to talk about America's potential undercover plane experiments. We want to talk about aliens? This is the alien question. <laughs> You're right. All right, man. Aliens, it is. Uh, I think and you mean specifically aliens associated with UFOs? Because there are different kinds of aliens, in my opinion, that are like interdimensional that don't have to use spacecraft, but this is different from that, right? Yes, and good point too. We're also not talking about aliens that could exist in a planet that we have far from discovered. We're talking the possibility oh. of aliens having visited in spacecraft uh, that are uh, like unidentified. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, like aliens that, physical aliens, uh, material, okay. Let's see, how do I, okay, okay. We're doing the, we're doing the philosophical definition here. What we are posing is the question, is if there have been aliens that have traveled physically in the material plane in which we are currently interacting, uh, as opposed to other ones, I'll just vaguely say, um, and that those aliens who have traveled in physical spacecraft through whatever means, they could have traveled through different dimensions. We'll, we'll allow that distinction still. But they came here physically and physically interacted with people. Or do still, maybe. That could be another thing, but, or have at all. It's possible, is the question. Great. Okay. So here's where I sit with this. Um, I've taken different astronomy classes, and it seems to me that with the sheer amount of planets that just exist in this galaxy, uh, not just oh, this yeah, galaxy, cool. but beyond this galaxy, right? Yeah. Um, there's actually like a really strong chance. It's almost unlikely that Earth is the only planet that has had any life of any kind appear well we now, already know that that's not true we've seen life like bacteria we found on other planets like bacteria comes from asteroids so we know that like living things exist outside of the earth already okay i to be honest i'm taking your word for that um i believe it with your conviction but yeah, uh, yeah. i didn't know that yeah that's um, not in the scientific i mean like that's not really exciting to people there's a lot of theories that the moon of europa uh which is one of the moons of saturn i think um, is completely covered in ice and that the entire surface of the earth or the moon beneath the ice is ocean. And because it's frozen, there's a chance that there's like life that's developed in the water underneath it. So that's hmm. interesting, I think. Sure. Um, yeah. I, so the idea of life being on other planets, I think is pretty strong. The, the question is like, how intelligent could the life be where it might have visited? And then there's another page of this, which is there have definitely been like a lot of unidentified flying objects that have been seen. And I think that's hard to dispute um, considering how much the government has gone out of their way to, um, you know, not talk about. It. And then I think it was actually a couple of years ago, the government even acknowledged, yes, unidentified flying objects that we are not aware of their origin have existed, which yeah. could be. Fun fact, if y'all go do some research and look at the uh, COVID relief bill uh a lot of you know you guys might have heard of like piggyback bills which is where a bill is being written and it's probably like a big issue that's projected to pass so people who are writing it will try to lump in a bunch of other stuff that they want to pass and, and hope that it flies as well and doesn't get edited out because politics is just a series of underhanded tactics um and uh and in this particular covid bill there was actually a thing that uh outlined the required release of certain information regarding ufo 
studies and sightings from scientists. And there were a lot of reports of unidentified flying objects that have not been identified to this day that were released. Right. And but nobody knew about it. Nobody knew about it because the COVID news stories were going on, which is why they put it in the bill, in my opinion. Yes. And I heard about this as well. Um, the intrigue, of course, is whether like they are actually concerned with the alien side of that. And I'm not convinced of that part because I think that they are probably thinking many of these objects are from other countries and it's more of a national security issue or a military issue. Um, because we don't know that it's aliens yeah. that they have in mind. We just know that UFOs are on their radar. The one thing that gives me an... I, I'm giving this a 9 out of 10 for chances of having happened. Woo. And uh, yeah, call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't really go into most things. I'm not somebody that actually believes in a lot of stuff like that. As probably a lot of you have actually gathered by my answers on a lot of these things. Because again, like I'll, I'll go with parallel dimension stuff, but a lot of times I think people just don't understand what they're looking at and call it an alien or a ghost or whatever, which makes a lot of sense because we don't have the language for a lot of these things that we don't understand naturally. Um, but there was one interview that I heard uh, with Bob Lazar, who is a, a guy who was apparently a scientist who worked on Area 51 and is one of the few people who has not um, decided to be quiet about his time there and what he saw. And I'm not going to lie, man, that story that I heard sounds like ridiculously credible. And like, you know, the pretty much the only significant point was that there was one moment when he was working there. He was assigned to work on one alien spacecraft at um, Area 51. And it was every scientist who was working there, according to him, I will stipulate, um, was only given an extremely small amount of information that to write or that was 100% related to what they were working on and they were not allowed to know anything else about the project. So the only information that he had was like regarding the physics of the the thing that he was working on which to him was like an alien spacecraft because when he saw it for the first time he went to touch it and they're like you can't touch it. You really cannot touch it. And like so there there's all of this uh you know I mean obviously it's his story I I don't, I haven't like done extra research to know if it's been debunked or anything, but as far as I understand, all of the records of him having worked at Area 51 are true and that it's all actually documented that he was in fact a scientist at Area 51 during that time and that they actually did work on stuff. And he said there was one moment where all of the like the warehouse garage doors were open and he saw personally seven different looking spacecraft that were all being worked on. Wow. Okay. He, he doesn't so, know anything about it, but just that he saw seven things that all looked alien to him. That's very interesting. And with these stories, there's a lot of different stories that have floated around for a long time about, you know, not only people seeing things in the sky, but saying that there have been experiences with aliens. And, you know, I do think that a lot of things have logical conclusions this is definitely a thing where there have been so many different cases. It, at the very least, it's very fun. Um, scientifically, I think that we would have to suspend a certain level of disbelief that an intelligent life has been able to develop technology that would be enough to beat light speed in order to get to us. Because it would have to be most likely past light speed, right? And that's hard for me to uh, suspend my disbelief and see just because physically we have not been able to find something that is faster than that. Or they have technology that we can't even fathom with our own physics. And I yeah. think that actually is more likely 
because we're always going to be narrow-minded within what we understand. But based on what we understand, it's hard for me to give it like uh, as high of a rating as you because I think there's enough questions out there. So I'm going to stick with a six, but I would love for it to be true. I really would. I I hope that we have been visited before. I think it's very, very fun to think about. I think it's I think it's pretty likely. When it comes to like multi-dimensional aliens, though, I'm just giving that a 10 out of 10, I'll say right now. There's <laughs> like stuff. no chance. I mean, we can't even like see everything right now. You know what I mean? Like our brains only can register so much information. There's a million things happening in front of your eye holes at this very second that you're not seeing and you'll never see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of that too is just uh, we are stuck within our color palette, right? And once things go into infrared and ultraviolet on the other side of the scale, yeah. our eyes can no longer detect it. Yeah, I mean, that's the most accessible one. You know, there's sounds that we can't hear. There's things that we can't see. There's a million senses that we probably don't even have. So we can't even fathom what to study because it's just not a part of human the human brain. You know what I mean? Like, who knows how much reality we're not experiencing? Could be a ton. Sure. Uh, well, dude, this is the finale. This is it. We're taking a little yep. bit of a break after this. This has been so much fun to do this podcast, I gotta say. Yeah, man, this has been a really good time. I am excited for us to resume. I'm excited for any bonus episodes we do. Thanks, everybody, for watching this whole time. The The amount of people who have been on board and interested in this is awesome. It's a fun show, and uh, we're thrilled to be able to share it and geek out with it with people. That's right. Uh, so until next time, everybody, this podcast is brought to you by the Brazilian Dragon Podcast Network. You can watch Lucas and I and Hester Brothers Cartoon Theater on YouTube. You can follow us on social media. You can go to the Discord. So much fun to chat there. And you can leave us an iTunes review. Uh, or honestly, I think you can leave reviews on other places too. So whatever you have access to, what, you know, anything helps. We appreciate it. So thank you, Tessa Scarborough, for the awesome illustration. And Anna LaFleur, the voice of the mysterious woman. We will see you all next week. Happy sleuthing. Peace, everyone.